Hey, Serena Wills, and welcome to our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Hey. So, Serena, before we get into your really cool background story and your story <laughs> of hope in the Lyme community, I just want to introduce Taylor Bruni as my special guest co-host. I have to admit, I'm really happy Rich isn't here tonight because we interviewed Taylor almost four years ago on our podcast. She was episode 24, A Beautiful Heart in Bloom, and she really is a beautiful heart. Rich and I bonded with her. We've liked her ever since. We've become friends, and we're really happy to have Taylor back to co-host on this podcast. So, Taylor, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I feel like this is going to be a great episode and I just feel really blessed to be able to be a part of this. So Serena, let's talk about you. Being a fellow New Yorker, you grew up in Queens, you know, we're in Long Island, right? So tell us what life is like as a kid growing up in Queens in New York City. Oh my gosh. So yeah, it's, um, it's really great memories. And I, I, I tell people when I go home, you know, New York will always be home. Um, that's when the accent turns on. Uh, everybody's like, oh, you know, you don't sound like you're from New York. I'm like, soon as I hit the New York, welcome to New York, it comes out. So um, <laughs> it's, it's embedded in people, no matter how long you've been gone, that is where you're from. So growing up, um, I grew up in South Jamaica, Queens, shout out to South Side Queens. Um, I grew up with, um, on a, a block, I, it's so funny, my block was full of girls, a lot of girls on my block, not a lot of boys. And I I see why the boys didn't really want to hang out with us too much. Um, They were probably scared. Um, So (laughs) it was funny. Um, I grew up with, um, in a three generational house, it was my grandparents, my mother, my mom uh, was a single mom. um, And it was just me as her child. And then she adopted two. Um, So I had two sisters, one has passed on since then. And I actually had an aunt and uncle. So we were all in this house together, sharing one full bathroom. It's so funny. I look back in time and I'm like, how in the world did my grandparents, me, my mom, my aunt and uncles, before my sisters came on board, all share one full bathroom? We had a one and a half bath house. Um, but that's just what you did. It was it was a blessing that I had a house. It could have been an apartment. So um we just shared and we just took turns and no one flushed the toilet while the one was in the shower. So um, it's because it would go cold or just no water at all. Uh, but yeah, really had um, just a great upbringing. Um, my father was not in my life at all. Um, he was absent. And the one thing I will say is my grandfather, he was the man of my life. Um, even though my father was not there, he chose to not be there. I didn't know my father's side of the family until I was 25 years old. Never saw a picture of my father until I was 25. Um, that's a whole story in itself. That could be a whole podcast um, how I met them. But yeah, grew up um, with them. Um, started out in Catholic school for three years. Um, my mother said, I don't like the route this is going. No offense to Catholic schools. But she just wanted a little more from me. And we learned about a specialized school. She learned about a specialized school in Harlem, New York. Now, mind you, I live in Queens. So um, my godbrother and god sister went there. One of her best friends, um, their mom talked all about this school and said they take kids from all over five boroughs. It's an open district school and you should uh, try to get Serena in there. And she we applied. Well, she applied. I did a visit. And from third through 12th grade, I was in Harlem. 
um, going to school in Harlem from Queens. So I commuted back and forth. Serena, for our listeners, can you share, is that a long distance? You know, or is that, you know, because people that aren't from New York aren't going to understand oh, what that yeah. means. Oh, yeah. So, so let's just say this. When I got to the older years where I was able to commute on my own, um, I would take a bus and two subways and then walk three blocks. So I probably why it's probably why I'm not a morning person right now. I used to have to wake up really early in the morning. <laughs> and I remember in high school, for example, Spanish class started at eight o'clock in the morning in Harlem. And we're also now talking about we're commuting during rush hour in New York. So I'm on the E train. You're probably familiar with all these. The E train to the six, get off the six at 103rd Street and then walk three and a half blocks. And I used to have to, I took the same bus every day because I knew I wouldn't be late for school. So I would literally have to leave the house at six something in the morning to get there by 8 a.m. Um, and then when it was 8, 30, 9 o'clock, I was able to leave a little later. So my goal in life when I got to college was I do not want early morning classes. I'm done. I'm over it. And I was only 18. Like, I'm over it. So uh it was quite a commute, and that was when the trains were working on your behalf. For those who are New Yorkers, we know the subways can be on our side, and they also cannot be on our side. So, <laughs> so that was when the trains were on your side and you got to school on time. But there were some of us commuting from Staten Island. They would take the ferry over to Manhattan, then take the subway all the way uptown to Harlem to get to school. So we were coming from all over. <laughs> wow. Serena, tell me, so throughout your childhood, up until the time you were, you know, essentially out of high school or 12th grade and before you were thinking about college, mm -hmm. living in New York, especially being in Queens and commuting to Harlem, were you aware of ticks and the risks that they bring to the human humans when they bite us? So were you aware of Lyme disease? Were you aware of ticks and the risks they pose to your health? No, not at, not all. at all. No, I heard about ticks because we had a dog. Um, till he, he passed away when I was in fifth or sixth grade. And I remember my grandparents being concerned because we had this huge bush, huge bush in the backyard. No matter how much they trimmed that bush, it would just come back 10 times bigger. And my dog liked to go behind and back in the bush, under the bush. And they would always be looking on him because he was a white poodle. And they would always just say, oh, thank goodness he doesn't have ticks. I would hear about it that way. Um, and they always made sure as a child, even small, to not go back there. So I was always scared of the bush. <laughs> so I just never went back there towards <laughs> it, next to it. Um, and I went camping as a child through my elementary school, the public school I went to, um, Central Park East 1. Um, we went camping. And I remember they would be heavy on the off spray. Oh, my gosh. Heavy on the off spray. And I didn't like bugs anyway. So... I stayed away even though we were camping. I was the one like digging and looking for stuff or up against trees. I was always very careful because um, I just didn't like bugs, period. So but I didn't know the damage that they caused. I'm thinking, oh, you know, for my dog's sake. And then they would always tell us, be careful of bugs when you go out in the woods. I'm thinking it's just a bite. Get it off of you and you're fine. But no one ever explained to us how detrimental um, it could be if you got bitten by a tick. Now, 
growing up, were you a healthy child, an average child? Were you were you get were you sickly? Did you get sick a lot? Just give us some context about what your health was like as you were a child up until you went into college. Yeah, it's um, it's really funny. So I I I was I wasn't sickly, but I was, and it's funny because we found out what was causing it when I actually got Lyme disease. It's so funny. So. Um, I used to always get sore throats every winter, like clockwork, every single month, sore throat. I would be out of school for three plus days every month from December through March. Um, the other thing was I had eczema, like really like bad eczema from like my neck down and summertime eczema was just awful. It's sweat. It's your skin is on fire. And I would be on these steroid creams. Um, but that was the extent of like sickness. I was out there roller skating, bike riding, dancing, running track, um, playing basketball at one point. So I was very um, athletic. I was used to, I was also a shy child, very shy. Um, and really it was... I just didn't feel comfortable around a lot of kids for some time. I would be glued to my mother's hip, as they would say. And when I got to these uh, to Central Park East One, the school in Harlem, my principal at a parent-teacher conference told my mother, uh, we usually give each child a journal per semester, and we've given your child a journal per month. So she was like, she's exercising her voice through her writing. And y'all have nothing to worry about. And my mother would say, I'm not the one worried too much because she talks to me, but it's other relatives. She doesn't talk to uh, the cousins or the aunts, anyone who doesn't live in the household. And she just doesn't go outside that much as a child. So third grade, I didn't really go out. Fourth grade, I started venturing out on the block. And this is when you could go outside and your parents didn't have to worry about you. Like everybody else looked out for you, other you know parents on the block but yeah I was pretty I was very active um really active as a child but always dealt with eczema and sore throats all the way up until I got Lyme disease so we're going to get into what was causing those symptoms once we get to your diagnosis and once you unraveled what the cause was but I just want to stop and take a moment to talk about a public service announcement we can share because we have people reach out to us all the time saying, hey, I think I might have Lyme, but it's probably not possible because I don't really, I'm not an outdoorsy person. I don't like the woods. I am I stay indoors a lot. There's no way I have Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a, a false belief that many of us have because there are so many ways to get Lyme, never mind being bit mm-hmm. by a tick, but congenital Lyme is real. I mean, so many people now it's tests and, and going back with your family history and testing parents, we're finding that a lot of people think they may have been born with Lyme from their mother or their father. And mm-hmm. we know we can get Lyme and other tick-borne diseases from blood transfusions as well, right? That's becoming mm-hmm. more and more common as we start to mm-hmm. be able to identify these things and test people and test the blood samples. So I think it's just a false belief. And I'm glad you brought that up for anybody listening that may be thinking they have Lyme or they, maybe they got reinfected, but they don't leave the house often that it's possible and it's not as uncommon as you'd think, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. So talk to us about Serena. Now the transition from leaving this school that you were in and traveling great lengths to get to every day for most of your life to going to, well, did you apply to college? Did you go to college? It sounds like you may have, what you may have dabbled in college a little bit. Yeah. So the elementary school was Central Park East one. And then my principal, God bless her heart. She's still alive to this day. And we're Facebook friends and LinkedIn friends. Um, <laughs> she created a middle and high school 
Um, so that was now Central Park East Secondary School because she said, my kids are graduating elementary school and there was three sister schools. She said, but they're all going back out to traditional middle and high schools, which were huge, huge. And you know, New York public schools, you could go to a high school and it has like a couple of thousand kids easily. So she created a middle and high school. So I was there now all the way through 12th grade. So part of us being there in high school was we took two night trips to college campuses and they partnered with colleges and universities. And I was able to see universities in Massachusetts, upstate New York, uh, Pennsylvania, Jersey, and we would stay on campus. We would That's have a great idea, Serena. I wish yes. more schools would do that. You get Me to experience too. the life, see what the, the mood is yep. like, maybe look at some classes. I I mean, that's amazing. Yep. So um, that's that's great. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's such a cool no, idea. No, it was, I, like you said, we're in 2023. And I'm like, high, this should be like a norm for high schools. Like every high school, as soon as you get there, even if it's a day trip to a university or college or a trade school or what have you. But we were going overnight. Um, for two nights. And at this time, my mom was used to it. My grandparents were used to me being gone because we would do camping trips to the elementary school and pen pal trips. And I think the pen pal trips, you know, tripped out my mother a little bit more. Like, I don't know this family. I don't know where my daughter's staying, you know? So, but by the time we were going to college universities, she was like, oh, she'll be fine. And she's going to a, co a college. Um, so that was my introduction to, I want to go away to college. I knew, I loved New York. I loved the five boroughs, but I wanted to get away. And I knew I had to stay in New York uh, because of financial aid. So learned about that too. That was the other thing, uh, part of high school was they, they actually educated parents on where you got the most money and how to fill out FAFSA forms and all of that. So yeah, I went away. Um, it was actually, my school had a really great connection with Syracuse University, a great partnership. And I loved it. When I went there, despite the cold, and I was really thankful we took our trip in the winter. They were like, we want you to experience Syracuse for what it's going to be. The real <laughs> Syracuse in the winter time. Syracuse. <laughs> Don't come in the summer and like, oh, we love it here. And you get here and two months in, it's snowing. So... <laughs> So I loved it there. I actually went to their pre-college program. I was a junior going into my senior year of high school and got accepted to Syracuse pre-college and loved it. Um, I was in the School of Architecture um, as a junior going into my senior year of high school. And that's when I started to learn, like, this is more than just drawing pictures of houses. They want you to know calculus and physics, which I learned quickly as I got to Syracuse. I can't pass these classes to save my life. So, <laughs> but I still love Syracuse, got accepted and went away to college. Did you finish up or when you realized this wasn't for you, did you move on to another <laughs> school? What happened next? Yeah, I remember having that conversation with my mom and academic advisors saying, okay, let's start talking about a plan B because um, the School of Architecture requires physics, calculus, um, geometry was a snap for me, but all of the statistics classes, and I was not, I wasn't passing on a couple of levels. I just wasn't passing because I couldn't understand it. Uh, but we learned when I was at Syracuse University, I had 
a learning disability that was never detected. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to be the, the lover of architecture and embrace it. But um, I said, but I love Syracuse. I was like, so I don't want to go anywhere. And uh, we, I stayed there all four years and I was an undecided major um, for my freshman year. Uh, so freshman year, I didn't, I didn't get accepted to the school of architecture, but I was taking classes so I could get in eventually, but it was not happening. So I was like, okay, we'll just be undecided. And I was so thankful for my advisors who I am still in touch with till this day. I mean, like we are in contact and I love them. They're like family as to what is Serena's passions? What is she going to now, what does she love to do besides designing houses and, you know, creating, um, creating houses inside out? Cause I did that for part of high school. I was doing architecture in my junior and senior year of high school. Wow. So yeah, we, um, I actually was like, I really love volunteering. I was like, but I'm volunteering. I'm not making money. And they were like, but you can look into the nonprofit sector and make money. So that's where I found uh, my major at Syracuse University through the School of Maxwell um, and also through College of Arts and Sciences. And I was a policy studies major and my focus was health education and human services. And I got into that major in my last semester of sophomore year and absolutely loved it. Loved it. Well, health education and human services it seems like that's foreshadowing to some of the work that you're doing now. So we'll get there. But I heard that and right away. I'm yeah. like, ooh, interesting, right? <laughs> but I, I do want to pivot back for a second because you mentioned when you were in Syracuse, some of your counselors and advisors helped you discover that you had a learning disability. Did you, yeah. when you were in high school or any earlier education, were there ever any hints or tips or clues looking back that maybe you had the learning disability then as well? Or do you think this sort of popped up out of nowhere in college? You know, I never... Some people are just not good test takers. So that was the excuse. It was like, you know, she's just not a good test taker when it comes to multiple choice. Um, and she's fine. In my high school, we were more driven towards writing and humanities. Um, and that's why a lot of us graduated really knowing how to like write research papers and everything like that. So when we did tests, they were more written tests until we had to do the statewide exams or the regents exams and all those other lovely names they have for the New York um, exams. And I would never do too well with those exams. And so my high school embraced the way I learned. So when I got to college, college is a whole different ball game. Yeah. So we're now in four or five classes, you're moving around. And I realized I wasn't picking up everything that was taught, like stuff would be missing. And when I would get to the test, um, I always got confused when it, especially multiple choice, like, okay, I'm down to the last two answers. I don't know which one to choose. And I knew I knew some of the material, but I just would sometimes just choose an answer and, and move forward. And that's when they started to discover, okay, she knows the material, but she's not passing the test. And there's there's a correlation here. And thank goodness. Now, when you age out of high school, uh, testing is no longer free for learning disabilities. It's, it comes with a, a cost. And uh, thank goodness. I don't to this day. I don't know where the money came from. Syracuse University found it. My advisors found it. 
but it came out to be about close to $10,000 um, testing it, me. It cost $10,000 just Back to then. get you a, <laughs> a label of a learning disability. I shouldn't say yeah. a label, but a, 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 I don't want to say diagnosis, but un yeah. to understand that you had a learning disability. Yeah, it was months and months of evaluations. Now you figure this is the 90s. So I don't know what it would cost now, but um, this is the 90s. And it was a battery of evaluations, tests, and long story short, even during those evaluations, I was seeing like where the gap was. And then it took, it was actually, this was going on throughout my, some of my freshman year and most of my sophomore year. And that's when we discovered, okay, she has a form of, it was now back then it was called a form of dyslexia where they said her, the letters and stuff are not, you know, backwards or, but it's the way I, my brain just, my brain just had a different way of learning. That's just the way it was. And how can we, how could, how could she pass classes with the way she's learning? And that's where the evaluations came in. That's where the accommodations came in. So it was great because with the accommodations, they said, we're going to chuck the multiple choice test because that is not her jam. Okay. And we're going to flip it into written exams. And we, they allowed me to do a uh, tape recording. Now, back now you could, they got live streams. So everything's recorded. But back then you had to get permission to like record lectures and everything like that. So I was able to record and that way, as I'm reading the textbook, I could play back the lecture and I could see the correlation and then everything was starting to click. But yeah, like from that point on, I didn't have to do multiple choice exams in college. And that was a dream come true. Now, of course, if you're doing after college, like the GREs and stuff, that's a different ball game. So um, but yeah, who knew? Like who knew? And that's because my high school was not heavy on multiple choice. They really wanted to... They wanted you to think and they wanted you to write and research. And that's where you really get your greatest learning, not these multiple choice exams. And it was just the way I was comprehending what was said in lecture. When I heard it again, it would click more for me when I heard it a second and third time. So thankfully you got this accommodation, which came from the rigorous testing and yeah. identification of this type of dyslexia. Yeah. So now that you have a, a major in, I think it was policy studies mm -hmm. with a focus on health education and human services, human mm -hmm. services. Did you finish up that were you able to graduate college and tell, talk us through what that was like to graduate and potentially mm -hmm. transition now into the workforce or maybe taking the GREs and, and looking at a, a graduate degree? So it's funny. I just knew I was never going back to school. I was like, I'm done. I'm happy with my bachelor's. <laughs> I'm finished. Who knew? Okay. So, uh, I graduated um, on time and what I did was I went to summer school. So I was in summer school, summer 94, 95 and 96. Every summer I went for one, it was like a six week. You could do both um, both semesters, like summer semesters. I, I only did one um, per, per summer because that's money. That was loan money now. Okay, so loans that I probably still owe to this day. But um. <laughs> But yeah, I did summer school and they, it was nice because they had traditional summer school, but they had uh, something called the Summer Academic Improvement Program. So you had uh, more time 
to do work. Uh, it was for students who were trying to get their GPAs up like myself and take classes again. So that was a great program that they had at Syracuse. Shout out to the Orange and Blue. Um, I'm so glad they did that because they could have just thrown me into regular summer school and say, okay, just throw her back to the wolves and let her take this class again. But I was able to take it again with my accommodations. And yeah, graduated with my friends, class of 97. And a lot of us to this day are still really close friends. That's great. So Serena, tell us about what your social life is like at this time. So now you're late teens, <laughs> early 20s, right? You're, we went through your academic life, but talk yeah. to us about your professional life. Uh, I'm sorry, your personal life. Were you dating? Were you, what were you doing for fun? Were you, what, you know, were you, were you an athlete? Were you a dancer? You know, just give us an idea as to what you, what you were doing and who Serena is as a young, yeah. young adult now at this point. Yeah, young adult. So I continued. So when I was in high school, um, it's funny because my mom was a professional West African dancer. So I grew up in the arts. I grew up around dancers, visual artists, musicians, you name it. Um, so the one thing I loved about my mother was she never forced it onto me. And she said, whatever you choose to do, whatever you want to do in life, I support you. So we're now talking we're going backtrack to, to high school, which leads into young adulthood. Um, this is the hip hop era. Rap is born. And I was a hip hop dancer. And I just knew I was going to be in Mary J. Blige's videos. It's not too late. <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> um, I just knew I was going to be in a Run DMC video, LL Cool J, you name it. So get to college. I was the one. I was the one dancing. I was at every party, every weekend, you name it. And we had dance routines because I had danced with a, a group of friends and we would like try out for videos, like actually like audition and try out for videos. We would take hip hop dance classes all through high school. So this continued on all the way through, I want to say like my mid thirties. Um, I was really heavy into hip hop dance, house music, house dance. And then I got into West African dancing in my 30s. We didn't get to the 30s yet, but that was me. I was dancing. I was at the basement parties in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, if my family hears, it's like, oh, that's where she was in high school. Um, so I was at the basement parties. You sound parties. like a really fun, <laughs> a really fun young adult, it sounds like. I would have loved to. Yeah, uh, we I'm happy to know you ball. now, but I wish I would have known you then too. I'm telling you, we had a ball. Syracuse, we would meet up and say, okay, we're going to meet at the Shine Student Center at this time, it all walk in together. So we had, you know, because we were all different dorms when we got to South Campus, we were in different apartments, but we had a blast and we can't, we continued it all the way through, like even after college, like, okay, we have to work, but we still could have fun. Um, so our 20s, I was still, you know, now I moved to the DC area. That was, that's a funny story how I got here. So um, you, moved, you moved to DC after you graduated? It was like two weeks after graduation. I had no job um, yet. And I had interviews. I was waiting as well as my mother and grandparents, like, will she please get a job? Will somebody please call this girl and get her employed? It's only two weeks. Come on. I mean, oh, yeah. there's got to yeah, be some just, sort of wiggle room there. Yeah, they were They were just happy to, it was, it was a, quite a transition because I had transitioned back to Queens after living on my own away at college. And I was so used to this level of independence and my mother had no problem with it, but my grandmother was the worrier and every move I made, Oh, what time is she coming back? Mm. Oh, she's out too late. 
oh, she, and I'm like, I'm 22 years old. Okay. Like, I'm glad you didn't see me in college when I, what time I was coming in, the sun was coming out. So, um, yeah, so it was, yeah, it was during, it was two weeks. Um, I was, I'll never forget this. Um, I was with my son's godmother. Um, we met in seventh grade. I was with her at her job. This is the funny part. I didn't have a job, but I was I was at other people's jobs having lunch with them, <laughs> meeting up with them. And I was with her downtown Manhattan at her job. And back then there were no cell phones. I'm dating, I'm dating myself. But my mother was trying to find me because I got a job offer and didn't know where I was. So she had a feeling I was with um, Vanetta and she called her at her desk. She called my <laughs> she called her on her job phone. And said, I think Serena's sitting next to you. She said she was visiting you today. And she said, yeah, she's right here at my desk. I was at her desk at her job. Um, and she said, tell her she got a job offer. And we have to get her to Tennessee by Sunday for a two-week training. It was Thursday. I was like, you mean next Sunday, right? She was like, nope, they want you in Tennessee this Sunday. They're FedExing the tickets because it's before e-tickets. All right, so you had to get a paper ticket. I was on a flight. Um to Tennessee for um, job training and the job was in DC. So I was like, well, that's great. But what am I doing after training? Where am I going? And my mom said, leave that up to me and your grandmother. And you get these two together and I had somewhere to live. Um, <laughs> DC. So I was like, okay, I'm packing my bag. I was really not unpacked anyway from Syracuse. So it was just a matter of repacking and now moving down to the D.C. area, as we call it the DMV, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. And I lived with my great uncle, which was my grandmother's brother um, in Silver Spring, Maryland, for what was supposed to be a summer job, just a summer. And I ended up falling in love with the D.C. area. And the rest is history. I went back and told my mom, I think I want to stay here. And of course, get my own apartment and got a U-Haul and trucked it down here with a U-Haul with my best friend. Here go Vanetta again. And she's a non-driver. So I had to drive a U-Haul by myself. Um, that was quite the adventure on the Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> Never driving a truck in my life. Um, and got here. And that was 1997. Well, Serena, walk us through what life was like in, in 1997 when you're in your early 20s, you graduate college. You're now in Washington, D.C. area. And oh, yeah. from that time, all the way through your, your mid to late 30s, when you started to get sick and exhibit the symptoms of Lyme disease, you know, just give us some of the highlights from that time period before your, your illness in your 30s. Yeah, it was, um, it was great times. Um, my 20s, it was a few of us that moved here that all went to Syracuse. So it was great to have friends that lived here. And then from there, you know, I met, work colleagues and we became friends because we were all in our 20s and we were all about okay we could work hard but we got to play hard so we would go out on a Tuesday night I don't know how we did it to this day and still be at work at fresh at 8 30 in the morning okay so <laughs> wow. but that's what you do in your 20s and you don't have kids and you yep. just live free and you have your health and and everything yeah. now mind you 20s and 30s like I said I was still battling the eczema by then you're you're finding different things at work, different skin creams, and you're doing all these like laboratory experiments, I call them, um, not knowing what all was going on. But 20s and 30s here, it was great times. I started getting the traveling bug. 
and it's a good bug to have. So my job was like, we want you to go away and you're given, they gave us three sites and they, they, you got a region of the country. So I got the Southeast region and my three sites were Lakeland, Florida, New Orleans, Louisiana. You're sending a 20 something year old to, to New Orleans. Okay. And Chattanooga, Tennessee. So I had to go there five times per site per year. So now we're talking, I'm traveling. Lakeland's right outside of Orlando. So we were big kids. We would take our per diem money and go to Disney World and Universal Studios. Uh, when I went to New Orleans, that's New Orleans. Okay, so the Jazz Fest, Music Fest, French Quarter, you name it. And I'm like, I get to work and do what I love to do, but I also get to travel to cities that, I never been to New Orleans. So now I'm here five times a year. Okay. And been to Orlando once before that, but now I'm here five times a year. And Chattanooga was interesting. Um, I'll just say that. It was very, very interesting. <laughs> so I will say the highlight of Chattanooga, I went to, I think it's called Lookout Mountain. And you're able to see three states. You're able to see the corner of like three or four states connect on a corner. But beautiful people that I met. And I said, you know, I want to travel, not just for work, but like go away. So I had a friend who graduated from Syracuse with me and moved to South Africa. And I told her, you know what, I'm coming to visit you. So in the year 2000, went out there for two weeks and I went to South Africa. I went to Johannesburg, Durban, and then we went up to Swaziland. So that was my, that was my life, like traveling, enjoying life. Um, I joined the sorority, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, historically black sorority. Uh, while I was here, uh, living here, finally got, you know, to join and was really living good times. There was um, a lot of loss during my 20s. I was losing a lot of the elders in my family and I lost my grandfather in 2001. I'll never forget that. I went to grad school. Remember, I told you I didn't think I was going back to school. And even he joked and said, I thought you were done with school. Um, I was like, me too. And now I'm taking a GRE exam. Okay. And got an MPA from Virginia Tech University in public administration. And actually graduated a month after he passed away. I didn't think I was going to make it across the stage. So even though I'm living my life and traveling and everything like that. I lost him. I lost a lot of his siblings. They all died back to back to back. And we were very close um, with our great aunts and uncles. Um, and then we had lost a couple of my grandmother's siblings. So we just lost a lot of elders at the same time from like the late nineties through like the early two thousands. So there was a lot of grieving going on during that time. But I was still like, just do my best, push myself out there and, uh, you know, just try to live life to the fullest. Mr. And Mr. I also, oh, mm -hmm. sorry. I also mm -hmm. discovered my writing because remember I, I, I used to love writing and I never stopped writing. But when I got to be close to 30, that's when I realized I want to do this more on a professional tip. I want to like submit articles to magazines and take my poetry and do something with them and didn't quite know yet um, until I moved to Texas. That's another story. I moved to Dallas, Texas for three and a half years. Um, 
I thought I was getting married, but I didn't. That's a good thing. Um, so it's a great thing. <laughs> so wait, but... <laughs> you went you went from you went from the DC area to Texas back to DC? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you got you gotta tell us a little bit about that. So you it sounds like you were in a relationship, went to Texas with your boyfriend, maybe slash fiance potentially, and then Remember came that, back to that, DC. That song, your exes are from Texas. That's how I feel. Um <laughs> so my exes are from Texas and I went out there, um, and I, you know, we, the sad part, and I will say this, we lost our friendship. Um, we were great friends and we should have just stayed friends. Uh, we probably would have still remained friends to this day. Uh, but they, they say, you know, I'm Christian. Um, I believe in God. And they say that sometimes God will use, uh, use a situation for something else. I thought I was going to get married and live happily ever after. And several months after I got there, I realized things weren't working out um, with him. We both realized it for each other. The one thing that was was that was being birthed was my writing. And I really started to write more because he was the only person I knew out there. I knew him. So I started to meet people. Thank goodness, I, you know, I'm in a sorority. So I went and joined the chapter. I found the local chapter. But they were still like not my friends from Queens or Harlem or Syracuse or people I knew for years and years. So I really had a lot of quiet moments. And Dallas, Texas, now is more happening. But back then, it wasn't like the D.C. area where Monday through Sunday you could find happy hours, clubs open. It wasn't like New York where stuff was open till five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you're leaving the club and the sun is out and you're going to eat breakfast. And I really started diving more into writing. And that's where I actually first got published was when I was in Dallas, Texas. And I got published in an anthology and it was called Gumbo for the Soul. And um, I was like, wow, I'm published. And I got published like three or four times before I moved back to D.C. I was only there three and a half years. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. And I was like, this is incredible. Okay. And. I wasn't supposed to be with him. Okay, I was supposed to birth my writing and get on open mics and share my poetry. And that's actually where I started African dancing too. I'll never forget my mother and the scream over the phone when I said, Ma, guess what? I found a West African dance class and I took my first class. She was beside herself and said, I've been saving my stuff for you all these years. And it was it was the lapas. It's like a skirt you wrap around. And some of her costumes, she was saving them for the day when I started dancing. And I didn't know this. It was in a hope chest that she has. I now have the hope chest in my bedroom. But you open up the hope chest, it's everything she danced in. All those years from the 70s, the 80s. And she was saving them for me. This is like 2006 or 2007. But I told her, yeah, I just, I heard the drums and they were calling me one day and I was, you know, at an open mic, like I need to check out the class and it just went from there. So the young, shy Serena, who <laughs> people thought wouldn't talk to anybody but her immediate family that lived in her home is now this person who's outgoing, doing yeah. African dance. You're doing, yeah. you're doing all these things that are kind of scary from a, from a public speaking standpoint. Right. So oh God. it's yeah. cool to see your, your progression there. <laughs> So yeah. as much as I'm I'm sorry that you had to go through that experience, it sounds like Texas really allowed you to <laughs> flourish with your your yes. God-given talents, right? Your writing, yeah. your 
dancing, etc. And mm-hmm. now you go back to DC to go for work. Why do you why do you go back to DC? What brings you back there? So I'll never forget. It was January 2009. And I remember talking to my mom. Um, we were talking shortly after. Yeah, because this is now we are now in the Obama era. So she I was talking to her and my grandmother a lot. But then my mother said, I really need to talk to you more seriously. Um, I said, okay, you know, when I get home, I was at work one day when she's telling me, yeah, when you get home tonight, let's talk. And I could sense in her voice, something was off. And I said, you know, Ma, what's going on? And she said, I just haven't been feeling myself lately. She said, I know I'm going through menopause. And she said, oh, Serena, when you go through menopause, my God. She was like the hot flashes, the cold flashes, the flashes, just... She said, but I'm just not feeling me. And she said, I know I'm going through this, but there's something not quite right. And I know you're all the way in Dallas, but I would be, I would feel better if you move back east to be closer to me. And this is January 2009. That was it. That's all she had to do was ask. And I I literally told my boss like the next week, um, I said, I don't know, you know, I said, I have a feeling I need to be back home by the summer. I said, I know this is a crazy resignation, but I resign. And I, I'm giving you a few months in advance because my job was, our jobs had a lot going on. But I said, I need help with this transition. I said, because something is not right with my mom. I was like, I'm talking to her and she's just not even sounding like herself. And then I'm talking to my grandmother because they live together. Um, so my grandmother said, yeah, your mother's been really tired, kind of lethargic. You know, she said, yeah, you go through menopause, but I think it's, I think it's something more than menopause. And she won't go to the doctor. She said, you know how your mother feels about doctors? I said, yeah, I know. It's like, it's like just dragging somebody. Like she just never liked the doctor. She always made sure my sisters went to the doctors. I went to the doctor. Everybody else got taken care of she would not take care of herself. So that's what got me back to the D.C. area. I moved back July 9th, 2009. Um, And a month to the date later, she was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. To the date. And I'm like, August 9th, 2009. I'm like, "This this was the what? And the first time she was diagnosed, it was a really poor misdiagnosis. Um, they said, oh, you have constipation, just take some Imodium AD and go home and you'll feel better. And she said, I, I think it's more than constipation. So she left the hospital, checked herself back into the ER and now met with the head of ER because my mom was a, a really big time advocate. She advocated for my sisters. One has autism, one has severe brain damage. She advocated for special needs children. That was her that was her gift. And she advocated for health and wellness across the board. So she now used her voice for herself. Met with the head of ER. She's in the hospital, sick. And she said, I need to talk to the head of ER. Pointed out the person, the doctor who misdiagnosed her and said, I was just here a few days ago. And he said, I had constipation. I know I have that, but sent me home. And they never did anything. Ultrasounds, CAT scans, nothing. They did it that day. And that's when they discovered the tumors. They were in her uterus. They were in her ovaries. They were everywhere. And they could tell at that point that it had already spread to her stomach. That's why she just really couldn't even eat. So 
August 9th, stage four ovarian cancer. And her CA level, which is your cancer antigen level, um, the normal CA level um, should be around 35. Your CA 125, hers was in the thousands. Thousands. They were like, we're surprised you even walked in here and that you're even able to talk to us. And she said, well, I can't really breathe well. I can't walk well. She's my legs are weak. I feel chest tightness. And that's because the, the fluid from the cancer um, tumors, the cancerous tumors, the fluid was in her chest. It was in her legs. So the cancer was already spreading. And that's why she just wasn't feeling herself all those months. And, and unfortunately, ovarian cancer, I'm also an advocate for ovarian cancer, it's a very silent cancer. And it mimics me menopause and other things like menstrual cramps. I mean, women get menstrual cramps. So you think I'm just having my cycle. It could be ovarian cancer. And then six months after diagnosis, she passed away. I'm so sorry, Serena. Oh, and it was I'm just sorry. tragic. It's just, um, I was yeah. only 34 and became her caregiver, her health proxy. And we wow. had, so we had plans. Our plans were, okay, I'm, I'm back in the DC area. You're in New York. She was supposed to move here because I'm tired of New York. I want to be closer to you. I want to move um, me and your sister, Christina, down. And we could get a house together. We could get, you know, maybe a big apartment. And let's have a life, like, let's start a life together. That was the plan. And we were supposed to also go on a cruise because she had just turned 60. And a few months later, I was turning 35. And I tell people, I went from planning a vacation to planning a funeral. Whoa. That's how I felt. It was like, what do you mean stage four? What do you mean she's inoperable? What are her choices? What are we? And I remember that day when she sat down and talked to me. And it's the talk you never want to have. And it's the, I, this is what I want you to do um, when I pass away. We never had this conversation, Serena, but we have to have it. And I'm sitting there just taking it in because I have to. And I said, what do we tell Nana? So she said, I will tell your grandmother I have cancer. She said, I don't want to put that on you because she's already lost two daughters. I had two other aunts and they already had passed away years prior. Um, so she said, I have to tell her, but I'm going to fight and do what I can to try to beat this thing. But six months later, February 19th, 2010, she passed away. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So yeah, that mean, was life. That was like, I'm back a, in the D.C. area and this is happening? Like, really? <laughs> I yeah. mean, there's a tremendous amount of loss in your life from the time you were young all the way yeah. through the time you're now your mid-30s with your mom, right? You, yeah. you mentioned a lot of elders and a lot of yeah. just, you know, constant loss and sadness. Yeah. And you had uh, some underlying condition that we're going to get to in a little bit. Mm -hmm. But tell us about so now you're 35, right? We know yep. that you're you started getting sick when you were 37. Walk us through, you know, the the what happens next, what your early mm -hmm. symptoms were, and your, your Lyme diagnosis. Let's, let's let's kind of walk through that part now because yeah. I cannot but wonder. A lot of these things with loss are immune dysfunctional, right? They 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 yes. weaken your immune system. Mm -hmm. They've been impacting your emotions. And I'm not saying that it's in our heads. I know people get we enough people tell us it's all in our heads. Lyme mm -hmm. disease is not in our heads, but yeah. when we go through loss and tragedy, 
it weakens our immune system and makes us more susceptible to Lyme disease to become even more yes. sicker, right? So I see yeah. the stage being set here for what's about to happen in your life. So walk us through that. Oh, you know, yes. your mom passes and I'm so sorry, right? Yeah, and then shortly after you're sick and you're diagnosed with Lyme disease. And then like to rewind, um, like I said, I met my father's family. My father's side in the year 2000, I was 25. I had missed missing, I had missed meeting my father by two months. He passed March 2000. I met my family May 2000. And they were like, he just died. I was like, what? I never met him. I finally am close to meeting him and he's gone. So 35, no parents. Okay. And my grandfather's gone and other elders. Oh. And my sister passed in 2007. Uh, my sister's name's Ayana. And she was born with severe brain damage by my aunt who had passed in 1983. And my mom said, I'm going to take her home. I'll adopt her. And the doctors said, oh, she won't live past the age of two. And my sister lived to be 24. So that was my mom's love, keeping her here. So we lost Ayana in 2007. Two and a half years later, I lost my mother. So I'm like, okay, can the grief train stop? Can it just stop? Yeah. Now, the good news that did happen between that and Lyme before I get to Lyme is I had my son. So didn't know he was not in the plans at all. Um, so he was not in the plans. And I have my sister, Christina, um, who has autism. And um, me and my grandmother became her co-guardians December 2010, after my mom had passed months later. The next Actually, no, that night. So, yeah, the same night, um, my friend Vanetta uh, said, uh, I think you should take a pregnancy test. I know you said you're stressed, you're grieving. I, I think it's more than that. I was like, oh, whatever. Um, I'm going to take this test. I'll be fine. And I'm going to have a glass of wine afterwards. And the test came back positive. I said, whoa, um, I'm, I'm pregnant. And my goddaughter at the time was screaming, oh, I'm so happy. And I'm like, what? Um, I lost my mother a few months, several months ago, and I'm pregnant with a child and I became a guardian to my sister. So how do I get two dependents in less than 24 hours? Okay. So <laughs> that was the joke that the family had. You just gained two dependents in, 20, <laughs> in less than 24 hours. But so there were some blessings in the midst of it. Um, but my son was super young when I was bitten by a tick. So I was the active mom, like, you know, you know, I was a marathon runner, yeah. running 5Ks, 10Ks, doing the full half, you know, marathon, full marathon, African dancing, traveling. I now have my son on my hip. When he was born, we were doing baby and me swim classes and doing all the things a new mom does. Like just, I was, I just had all these plans for us. Never a plan to get bitten by a tick while he was only 13 months old and just life unraveling. So I remember being out on a run with him. Uh, well, before the run, I was actually at African dance class. African dance class is an hour and a half to two hours long. And I remember only getting through maybe 25 to 30 minutes of class and I was out of breath. And I was like, okay, I know it's ragweed season here, but I've never been short of breath like this. Like it was a little scary. And, you know, my teacher said, you know, maybe the weather is changing. It's late September. 
almost early October. Maybe you have just a chest cold or something. Just sit out. Take it easy. I'm like, all right, fine. Um, and then later that week, I went for it's a typical run for me. I went for a six-month run. And um, during the six months, no, no, a six-mile run, six miles, sorry. A six-mile run, which was typical for me. And I was out of breath at mile one. And now I had my son with me in the, the running stroller because I had the running stroller. I was ready to go. And I am really out of breath. Like runners are stopping on the trail. And they're like, are you okay, ma'am? Are you okay? Because you don't seem too good. Like that's how out of breath I was. And I'm trying to like think like, why am I out of breath? I'm just trying to like recap what happened in those two weeks. So I went back to a week or two prior, still not putting it together. Um, I remember doing a walk, a nature walk with coworkers. Something told me, my intuition said, stay on the paved trail like you know, away from the trees and the bushes. Remember what your grandparents taught you as a child, that bush in the backyard, stay away from the bushes, stay away from the trees and stick to the paved trail. I didn't want to be the, the oddball. It was a new job. Um, it was at a high-end performing arts center here in the D.C. area. And I'm like, well, they're going on a nature walk. And I can still use it as part of my training. I was training for my next marathon. So I took that walk with them. And it was about a group of 10 of us. This is September 2012. And I remember rubbing my, my right arm rubbed against like a, a, like a bush sticking out. And I remember feeling something on my arm, not knowing it was a tick. And it looked like my, I have like a beauty mark on my arm. We don't call them moles. We call them beauty marks. So it was a little black beauty mark that's still on my arm. And it looked, it was next to it. So when I looked down one time, I thought it was just my beauty mark. I said, oh, no, wait, there's something next to it. And I remember pulling this thing off and, you know, just going about my business. It was a little mark. I said, it was just probably a little bug. I'm Okay. Was yeah, just, how how long was it on your arm for from the time you went on that nature walk until the time you found it on your arm? It was like we were the walk was ending and we were out for like a couple of miles. So came back to work and I'm like, oh, what is, you know, this thing is like it was like my arm was a little itchy. So I was like, oh, this thing is not coming off. So I remember removing it, just like taking it off and not not knowing it was a tick, because, of course, you learn about how to remove a tick. Well, I didn't know it was a tick. So I'm just pulling it off my arm and business as usual. And I remember that weekend I had to work and we were outdoors and it was really chilly out. And I remember I developed this unproductive cough. It felt like there was something rattling in my lungs, but nothing would come up. So that's why my African dance teacher said, well, you said you were out for work. So maybe you pick something up. The weather is changing. So everybody contributed to the weather changing and allergies and it's getting colder and not not doing like the like doing the math and going back in time saying maybe it's that bug that was on me that's doing this because I'm not thinking a bug of that size could be could cause shortness of breath, unproductive cough, rattling in the throat and the lungs and it just led to this snowball of symptoms that just started coming out of nowhere. 
But Serena, even if you were aware of ticks and Lyme disease and the risk they post your health and they would create those types of symptoms, the standard that's out there is a tick must be attached. I mean, I'm literally reading off a Google search from the CDC website. A tick must be attached for 36 to 48 hours or more in order for Lyme disease to be transmitted. Now, a lot of studies have proven otherwise, and there's still a lot of debate out there, but you were at most bitten for a few hours, ripped the tick off, and you contracted Lyme within within a few days you were having symptoms, right? So I think yeah. that's a really important note because there's a yeah. lot of misinformation about Lyme disease, the time yeah. it takes for it to be transmitted for a tick bite. And, and you know, yeah. not only in the chronic Lyme world, even the acute Lyme and, and the tick bite world, yeah. there's a lot of discrepancies, right? So yeah. I think that's an important note to highlight there. But why yeah. do you think it took so, you know, it's it's so odd, right? I, I mm-hmm. often tease that Rich likely has had Lyme disease and his immune system is managing it. And, you know, Dr. Rolls thinks that a lot of, he, he's convinced that most of us New Yorkers have yeah. Lyme disease, but, but mm-hmm. depending on our immune systems, our preexisting conditions and what other pathogens our immune system is managing, some people yeah. can just manage it and never get sick. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. why do you think it took only a few days for you to become symptomatic after the tick bite? Do you think it was all that loss and grief causing you to be immune compromised? And possibly some other things that were kind of, you know, always simmering at the base before you got Lyme? Yeah. So I remember when I finally met my doctor, I was referred to um, an integrative health doctor after the numerous misdiagnoses, numerous. I had nine, I was misdiagnosed nine times before the official diagnosis. And when I sat down with her, now this was November, I met her. So I had already been diagnosed with asthma, pleurisy, pneumonia, uh, ALS, lupus. Um, there's some other ones in there too. And oh yeah, um, before Lyme, this is after I met with her though, um, I was diagnosed with MS. And then after the Lyme diagnosis, an infectious disease doctor of all people is like, I don't think you have Lyme. I think you have Whipple's disease. I was like, what is Whipple's disease? And I'm showing you my paperwork, blood work, highly positive for Lyme. But sitting down with my doctor, um, she said, she just, it was so funny. I was supposed to go and meet with her for an hour. Um, I called her up after my friend said, I met this great doctor on Groupon. And so um, she said, um, I think you should go check her out. She worked wonders for me. She said, because I don't like that you have this snowball of symptoms. You were training for a marathon. Now you could barely get out the bed. And she said, you're weak in the body. You have your, you have a, a toddler. You're a single mom. That was the other hit. I'm a single mom. Um, Cause me and my son's father broke up. Um, but also before. the sudden onset, Serena, right? I mean, and I don't know, and maybe Taylor, if you can chime in, t- uh, for those that don't know, Taylor is has a, a, a medical background. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, Taylor, I wish I did. Uh, um, you you were a registered nurse, right? Uh, I'm a medical assistant. Medical assistant. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but what's interesting is to me, uh, you know, with your medical background, Taylor, I, I don't know that something like ALS or MS <laughs> is going to be such a rapid onset of symptoms. Isn't it more of a progression, right? Yeah. And what's so interesting is you mentioning, Serena, that you are diagnosed with various, all of these different diseases. And yeah, you are having it like within the first two days of getting bit. And that doesn't happen normally. And especially with certain autoimmune conditions, as well Mm -hmm. as like MS and 
um, ALS and all these different uh, conditions that a lot of uh, Lyme patients have been pre-diagnosed, misdiagnosed yeah. with. And um, it's just so calm. It's such a common thread through all of our stories yeah. that we have to go through all the misdiagnoses, <laughs> the, the fear, the anxiety, all yeah. the negative feelings and emotions and yeah. being able to learn how to cope with that only mm-hmm. to just be completely misdiagnosed and find another diagnosis, the true yes. diagnosis, which is Lyme. Yeah. So it just shows the common thread through all of our stories that that's just mm-hmm. an obstacle and a specific challenge that we have to all overcome and learn how to overcome that yeah. the normal individual with, you know, the normal seasonal flu doesn't yeah. really have to. And I think yeah. even though it's a negative you know, challenge for us, it definitely strengthens you and your ability to advocate for yourself mm-hmm. and your ability to research and not yeah. take the first doctor's opinion um, seriously, but to have mm-hmm. multiple opinions and yeah. have, you know, your own intuition and your own physical experience be uh, placed into the, yeah. you know, uh, situation as well. So I yeah. just, it's just so interesting. Uh, to hear this happen yeah. to you as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I love to read is no doctor was telling you that it was not Lyme disease. No doctor was telling you that, no. oh, it's just lupus, it's ALS, it's MS. I mean, right, you fought and advocated. And and I think this ties back to your mom being an mm-hmm. advocate and your mom advocating for you and all your siblings. And right, I mean, yeah. this is this is something that I think you, you took on from your family. And yeah. then from the time you got bit and infected in September and a few days later being symptomatic, you were diagnosed with Lyme in December, right? December. Despite all mm-hmm. these misdiagnoses. So just walk us through that that yeah. time frame. You, you started already, but like up yeah. until the diagnosis, because it sounds like you were not having all these crazy misdiagnoses. You were getting to the bottom of it. Yeah, it was the first diagnosis or well, misdiagnosis. It was actually they kind of like a tie. Um, so it was um, so it was asthma, which was the funniest one to me. I was like, I am a marathon runner. I think I would know if I have asthma by now, okay, just a little, okay, I think I would know, and you have, I think we, you have asthma, and written, like, literally prescribed, and put me on an inhaler, I'm like, okay, I was just training for my, my next marathon, the next one was, oh, we just think you're really stressed, so we might have a stress disorder, uh, maybe just take some time off of work, Mind you, I just got the full-time job last month. I don't have time to take off of work. I said, but a stress disorder, would that cause me to cough and have an unproductive cough and be short of breath? And at that point, I was starting to feel that I was getting leg weakness. And they said, oh, well, that's what anxiety can do to you. So that was another one. Um, and then it was mid-October. Um, I remember getting sharp pains in my rib cage. And I'm at work and I'm like, I have to go pick up my child from daycare. And this is when I had called a friend of mine. She was a friend of mine um, at the time. And she said, I'll get him. Just go to the ER. Went to the ER. Um, They did like a whole uh, chest X-ray. And they said, we think you have pleurisy. I was like, okay. So I went from asthma, stress disorder, anxiety, the flu to pleurisy. This is all from October one to mid-October. So by the end of October, I'm now back in the ER because my heart, my heart rate was off the charts and the heart palpitations were just unbearable. 
so now the paramedics came and got me. I'll never forget this. And this is when I had met a new friend um, that lived in the building I lived in. And she came up to me one day and noticed, you know, you're not your peppy self. I sense there's something off, a little off with you. And I told her, I'm not really feeling myself. I don't know what's wrong. I keep getting all these misdiagnoses and they're not right. And then literally within a several days of her approaching me, I'm calling her at five o'clock in the morning. Like, I know um, I don't really know you like that, but I need you to come upstairs. I need you to watch my child because I have to go to the ER again because my heart rate, I'm like waking up in sweats. I'm like, it's just, I'm, am I having a heart attack? What is going on? And when they came in, the paramedics came in, they, they said, yeah, it's really high. We got to take you in. And at that time, I'll never forget his name, um, Dr. Brown. He was an ER doctor. He was the one, and I, and God bless his heart. He said, I did all this blood work and everything is pristine. So he said, this is what I'm getting at. He said, there's something, he's like, it's an atomic bomb that went off in your immune system and is wreaking havoc. It's some sort of infection, some sort of disease but I can't put my finger on it because I'm an ER doctor. I would need time with you. So I was like, do you practice outside the ER? And he said, I do, but guess what? I'm retiring this Wednesday. Are you serious? I finally find a doctor who's listening to me and you're retiring in a few days. And I wish I could find him. He said, whatever it is, do not give up. Do not give up. He said, all of these, he said, I'm looking through your records. He said, asthma, pleurisy, this, that, and the third. He said, this is, it doesn't make sense. He said, whatever it is, doesn't make sense. But it is wreaking havoc. And he says, almost like it's hiding. He said, because it's not coming up in your blood work. He said, I'm doing like a, you know, just a, a typical um, panel and everything. He said, there's a couple of levels are a little off, but nothing to, no, nothing alarming. And he said, also, I think your heart rate's off the charts because they got you on all these crazy medications. He said, get off the inhalers, get off the anxiety meds, get off of the, I was on all these meds that these doctors were giving me, get off the allergy meds. He said, you know, detox your body. And he said, you need to find, a, you know, your primary care doctor. So I went there and they weren't really helpful. Um, but he wrote in the notes, like, you know, whoever watch, you know, sees me next. So he said, I want you to go to an internist here through the health system. And I know they can help you. Well, unfortunately, when I went to those internists, those are the ones that said, oh, we think you have ALS. Oh, we think you have lupus. Oh, we think you have. So that was the November diagnoses. Okay. So we have the October ones and we now have November. And I remember calling the week of Thanksgiving um, I remember not going to work that day, not knowing that one day would turn into a month. And I called the internist. I said, I don't feel well. Can I please come in and see you? They were like, go to the hospital because um, we're taking off for Thanksgiving. I mean, like, just like I, I came from the ER and they're telling me, come to you. So I knew I never want to go back there again. And that's when a good friend of mine um, reached out to me on Facebook in the middle of the night and said, I want you to reach out to my doctor, a doctor I found on Groupon and call her up, tell her I referred you. And she said, call her like tomorrow, Serena. 
So I called her. It was a Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's in two days. I'm supposed to go to New York to see my grandmother and family with my child. Um, and I'm feeling like I need to be in the hospital. And um, I'll give her a shout out, Dr. Mines, M-I-N-E-S. She's out of Washington, D.C., an integrative health doctor. She said, I have an opening for this afternoon. Can you come? I said, yep, I can come. And she said, you know, we can meet for like an hour or so and just see what's going on. We met for four hours. I was there until seven o'clock that night. And she said, I can't put my finger on it, my dear, but I'm going to be by your side until we figure it out. I'm not going to leave you. And I was, I was in tears. I was crying in her arms by the end of the night. And I said, I really feel like I'm dying. And she said, you're not going to die on my watch. You have too much work to do. And she said, whatever it is, we're going to figure it out together. But from that day, this is a four-hour meeting, four hours. Okay, she gave me a vitamin IV infusion. She um, she said, whatever it is, we got to boost, like we got to boost your immune system. She said, vitamins don't hurt anybody. She then said, um, she said, tell me about your history. So that's when I started talking about all the loss. And she said, my God, she was like, that would make you sick alone. She said, I'm just, I lost count how many people you lost and how many close people they were really close to you she said then on top of that you went through a horrific breakup with your son's father you weren't seeing that you didn't see that coming you went through a couple other breakups but that's a major one became a guardian to your sister that's not horrific but that's a lot of stress because your sister has autism she needs a lot of care um she said and you're working at a job that's not really paying you well and you're in the three-month probationary period, which means you're not getting paid to be out of work. So she said the stress overload is deafening. She was like, it, it is, it'll make anybody sick. So she said, whatever you have, I really believe the loss, the stress has just like just magnified it tenfold. And she said, um, and she said, you have a couple of other things happening with you. Because she said, you told me about your allergens. You told me about the sore throats because you were like, oh, wintertime is coming. I cannot go through the sore throat season. And she said, I'm looking at your skin and you have eczema. So she literally from that day, she said, I want you off of the gluten, dairy, alcohol, refined sugars. She had this whole list. And I'm like, excuse me, Thanksgiving is in two days. (laughs) I want to eat biscuits. Okay, I want to have a glass of wine. She said, this will be your last week. When you come back from New York, she said, get to New York and see your family. Because I have a feeling when you get back here, we're going to go to battle. She said, because I am not going to stop until I figure out what's wrong with you. And then we're going to figure out how to get you better. And yeah, when I got back from New York, um, a, a friend drove me up there with my son, Jordan. When I came back, I did not see New York again for about a year. And I just couldn't. I was just too sick. And yeah, I totally went cold turkey, gluten-free, dairy-free. Now, when she said no alcohol, I'll say this. Um, I love wine and I loved Ben and Jerry's ice cream. So when she said no dairy, I said, I have like three things of Ben and Jerry's ice cream in my freezer. And I have my white Zinfandel, my Moscato. I'm not an alcoholic, but when I come home from work, I just like to have a half a glass sometimes. That's all. I gave it all away. 
Um, she said, no more processed foods. So I, I didn't even know. I'm like, what do you mean by processed? I said, I eat healthy. She said, what defines healthy? I said, well, you know, I make chicken. I make my own fish. I said, but you know, sometimes I go to the freezer section and I get the bird's eye meal in a bag. And she said, that is processed. She said, no, not to bird's eye. She said, they got vegetables and all that. She said, it's the sauce they're using. It's the sodium that they're using. It's the stuff they put in it to keep it fresh for so long. So she said, no more uh, processed foods, no more canned foods. Like she was basically chucking my whole kitchen, like literally in less than, <laughs> less than a four hour sit. But I had to have friends come over. And I had to like completely reset my diet. And she said, I guarantee you this spring, you're not going to have an itch of eczema on your skin. And I guarantee you, so yeah, you have sore throats. You're going to be going through a lot, whatever you're going through. But she said, you're not going to go through a sore throat season again. She said, it's the food you're eating. She says nothing to do with what what's wrong with you now. But she said, you, you probably grew up on this food, dairy, gluten, wheat. That's all we knew. And she said, guaranteed. And sure enough, that April until now, I have like steroid cream to like, as like for emergency purposes, I use like a dot here and there every couple of months. I used to like bathe myself in steroid cream. But that was it. Like my doctor was calling me saying, hey, we haven't, you haven't uh, gotten a prescription in your steroid cream. I said, I don't need it anymore. It was the food I was eating. I was like, who knew all these years from the time I was like a toddler all the way until I was in my late thirties that it was because of food that was causing my eczema. That was a great start to helping your body heal. Right. And almost yeah. be in a place where it's not being burdened because yes. that diet for your body was burdening your body and causing you yep. to feel unwell, giving you some yep. throats, causing eczema and probably creating inflammation which yeah. is really bad when you compound that with Lyme disease, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So tell us about now when you finally get diagnosed with Lyme. And thankfully, you were able to make these dietary changes to be a first step and get some relief and almost set the stage for the treatment for Lyme. But mm -hmm. how did you get diagnosed for Lyme? And what did, you, what did you do to treat your Lyme disease? Yeah, so it was the first week of December. Um, that was right after Thanksgiving. And she said, I don't want to scare you, but I need you to get an MRI of your brain. She said, because you said half your body feels weak and the other half feels fine. Just want to make sure the brain looks okay. So this is where misdiagnosis number nine comes in because I went to get an MRI of my brain and spine. Um, first, it was without contrast. Uh, just, you know, just to see if, what was going on. And literally the MRI imaging place I went to called my doctor in less than 24 hours and said, we need her to come back and do another MRI of her brain, but with contrast, because we see something and we see lesions in her brain. I was like, uh, excuse me, what do you mean? And after I got the MRI of my brain and spine, uh, the radiologist wrote um, worrisome for her age group, um, possible multiple sclerosis. I'll never forget that sentence. And I remember being in her office, almost passing out. I mean, like calling, she's calling for her nurse, like, please get her a big glass of water. It was that day. It was that MRI. And she said, I've been, she said, literally, she said, I've been going through everything you've been telling me, all of the misdiagnoses, 
And now we got this one. And she said, you know what, Miss Wills? I think you have Lyme disease. And she did it without blood work. She was like, you have the classic, the classic tale of being misdiagnosed over wow. and over. And she said, I've treated people with Lyme and they all come in here with umpteen misdiagnoses, binders of stuff. And it's none of it. It's none of it. And she said, we're going to do the blood test. And she said, but I will tell you, um, if it comes back negative, I'm still treating you. She Good said, because yeah, she well. was, she, she's the one that really, she had books on her shelves about Lyme and was like, take these home. I want you to read these. She said, because it may have skipped over your bloodstream. She says a very smart bacteria. And she was sort of breaking down this bacteria. And she said, when do you remember getting bitten? And I said, September. And that's when it all just, everything flashed back to September. Wow. Never associating it. She said, even though you pulled the tick off your skin because you just used your fingernails, um, the legs or whatever could still be in, had been ingrained in your arm. She said, because it was a small tick. So she said, you might have taken it off and not all of it came off. So she said, that's probably what it is. And she said, on top of that, um, as you were saying, Matt, she said, you have been, she said, it's like grief central through, you, you've just been grieving. You can't even recover. She said, you've just grieving over and over. If it's not death, it's the loss of your significant other because he broke up with you. It's a job loss. It's this loss. It's umpteen losses. And she said, that is what really, she said, it is that atomic bomb that Dr. Brown was talking about. She said, grief is the atomic bomb. She said, eczema is autoimmune. You've had it since you were a, a child. So the inflammation is heavy in your body. And even though you're physically healthy, you're running marathons, you're working out, you're dancing, you're traveling, you've been battling health stuff for decades and unaddressed. Because everybody's like, oh, just keep giving her steroid cream, keep giving her cough syrup, keep giving her penicillin, keep giving her amoxicillin. And she said, if you're not allergic to amoxicillin or penicillin by now, you will be because your body's just going to be like, stop. It's just going to be like, I'm over the penicillins, amoxicillins. And sure enough, in the pandemic, I became allergic to penicillin and amoxicillin. I knew it was coming, but it was a matter of time. But yep, she, she did the diagnosis without even blood work. When she did the blood work, did it come back positive? Highly positive for Lyme disease. Highly tell us, positive. Tell us what she did to treat you. I'm really, really interested <laughs> to hear what that was like. Yeah. So after the tears, after crying in her arms with that blood, she said, Miss Wills, get back to my office. We have a diagnosis. And that was right before Christmas. That was one of the best Christmas presents, even though it was Lyme disease. We had a diagnosis that made yeah. sense. Okay. It wasn't MS, even though to this day, still fighting people about, oh, we really think you might have. No, I don't. Okay. Please stop it. <laughs> um, so we then sat down. And it took, it took time. It took trial and error. So she said, we could do this a couple of ways because she said, everybody is different. She said, I've treated people with IV Rocephin. She said, I've treated people with, and she said, and they were fine. She said, but I've treated some and they were like, no. She said, I've treated people with doxycycline. Some people's system was great. Some people know. And she said, I wish it was cookie cutter where I could say, we're going to do this, this, and this. And you're going to be 
cured from Lyme. She said Lyme doesn't, she said right now we could never tell if it is cured, but she said, what do you want to try? The nice part was she put the ball in my court. And I said, you know, of course me, I'm like, let's do antibiotics. Cause that's all I knew. And she said, but I still want to continue doing the vitamin IV infusions. We have to boost your immune system. And she said, I also want you to take probiotics. Didn't know what those were. So she's like, let me tell you what prebiotics are, probiotics. Um, she introduced me to kefir. She introduced me to all different kinds of supplements and things that I could just, you know, buy over the counter. And she said, this is going to help just really like reset your immune system. So we got the food thing. It's going to take time for the inflammation to go down because we're talking decades since you were a toddler eating, drinking milk, dairy, you know, wheat, um, gluten. She said no one knew what gluten was back in the 70s and 80s and 90s. So so we first started off after, you know, doing the vitamin IV infusions. We did that for about a month and we started off with doxycycline and IV rosefin. The doxycycline made me feel like I was having a panic attack every hour on the hour. I was like, I can't live like, I can't even function. Okay. So she said, stop the doxycycline out. So we were just like going through what was working. The IV rosefin seemed like it was working at first, but the die off was horrific. Now, mind you, I have a toddler. My child is one. Okay, so I'm like, I have a child to take care of. I have to go to work. Um, after the month was over, she said, I'm going to send you back to work, but we're going to fill out FMLA paperwork because I don't trust your job. So she's, she said, the minute you step foot in there, you say, I need the fa I need FMLA paperwork. Fax it over to me. We're going to immediately fill it out because we have to save your job. It's like Serena, that's, that's the Family Medical Leave Act, which gives yeah. you some rights based on your health, right? So uh, yep. the employer can't fire you because of nope. an illness or things like that, right? We filled it out Im immediately and expeditiously. I'm telling you, she, like I sent it to her. She had it back to HR the same day because she said, you're on probation. So it's very easy for them to let you go. And you need your medical benefits. You need pay. So, yeah, and every time right before it was about to expire, she would fill it right out again. And I know they were probably sick of us. Like, oh. yeah, she, we always beat them to the punch. So um, we tried the IV rosefin. We tried doxycycline. We tried um, biaxin, um, by capsules. Um, there was something else we tried. So this is now February. And she said, Miss Wills, she has this, I love her accent. Um, she has this way of saying my name. Um, her mom is like from France and her dad's from Africa. So her accent is very unique. Um, and she would say, Miss Wills, antibiotics is not your calling. It's not. She said, some people has worked, but she said, even those who, have, who has worked for them, I still have them on supplements, vitamin IV infusions, peroxide IV. I'm like, peroxide? She said, yes, because we have to clean the blood. So she said, even those who are on anti antibiotics, she said, that's why I'm an integrative health doctor. I do the best of both worlds. But she said, antibiotics is not for you. So she said, we're going to take this month. So we use February and part of March to detoxify. I was already detoxifying. So what that meant was I was now doing colon hydrotherapy, 
I was doing ionic foot baths. I was doing infrared saunas. And she had me doing that before the Lyme diagnosis, believe it or not. She was like, I need you to detox. And thank goodness for the HSA and the, the FSA card that you get with work, the flex spending account. And I was like, we're just gonna have to put it all on there. And that's what we did. And then I was seeing a neurologist. And she said, you do have lesions in your brain. We need to see, a, you need to see a neurologist. And she had one. Her Rolodex was heavy. She had doctors left and right. And she said, these are people I trust. And I know, and they're not going to turn you away. They're not going to think you're crazy. And even that neurologist said, I don't know how to treat Lyme, but I'm going to do every test under the moon, star, and sky for you to rule out other things until I find a neurologist that does know Lyme. So he stuck with me for a few months and he did. He found me a neurologist that knew the difference between Lyme disease and MS. He knew the difference between Lyme disease and Parkinson's or anything. But yeah, we started the, uh, it was March of now 2013. Um, she said, we're going to do vitamin IV infusions and peroxide infusions every week, twice a week. So I got two IVs a week. I got IV treatment for 14 months. And she said, we're going to keep detoxifying. We're going to keep using the supplements. But she said, neurologically, um, she said, there's something I'm thinking of, but I want, I want you to see the neurologist that knows Lyme. So I saw him um, that May, and this was the great news, because seeing neurologists is not easy to get in there. So we're talking months sometimes. So the first neurologist said, um, just call and make the appointment. I know it's going to say like October, November, and it's, it's April, but just make the appointment and tell me when your appointment is, and I'm going to get my my uh, front desk to go on the back end, and I'm going to have them call over to that front desk. So it was like the meeting of the minds, and his front desk called that front desk, and all of a sudden, I'm getting a call back, and it's like, oh, we can schedule you from May such and such. I was like, what? How did I get from October to May? <laughs> so I was like, I'm not going to ask questions. Okay. So I started adding to my team. I now have a neurologist that knows Lyme. Um, I found an herbalist and nutritionist, and I found them through The Healing Well, which is a great website. Um, shout out to The Healing Well. I met lots of people in the Lyme community there, and they say, you should try herbalism, and you need a nutritionist. You already know about all of the dietary restrictions you have, but um, how to gauge a Lyme diet and because even your gluten-free, dairy-free, you still can't eat everything. So I met um, an herbalist and a nutritionist. It was once the Thai Sophia Institute and is now Maryland University Integrative Health, not knowing that's where I would end up going to grad school. So I was a patient before a student. That's my story. And um, I met with them. So now I have a combo going. I have IVs. I have herbs. And that was another trial and error. What's going to work for her that's not going to slam her and make her feel like she is like dying again because of die off or what have you. And we have, I tried a lot of stuff. Um, cat's claw and what's it? Chris, Christophilus or however you say that. Um, all kinds of herbs. Um, 
I was introduced to olive leaf and um, teasel root and everything like that. And so we found what worked and we started using teasel um, one drop at a time. I was the one that had to just do one drop and work my way up. It went same with olive leaf because it was the herbalist and the nutritionist who said, I think you have co-infections. She said, even though the blood work is not coming back, she said, I think you have Bartonella. I think you have Babesia um, and a couple of others are in there. So she said, you may need to add another doctor to your team that really knows co-infections. So through the healing well, I found a naturopathic doctor. And that's what she said. Yeah, yeah, you have Bartonella. You got Babesia. And at one point, mycoplasma. Um, on top of Lyme. So they were like, you had all of this um, and it was a lot going on. Uh, so I have now a neurologist, an herbalist, nutritionist, a naturopathic, an integrative health doctor. And I had other um, colleagues now where I worked at who told me about their chiropractor. And they said, you need to see him. He's the truth. He's a healer. And they were like, you will love him. He, they said, chiropractors get they, they get the wrong reputation. They were like, they're not just there to crack backs and send you home. So I now had a chiropractor who was still in my life. A lot of these doctors are still on my team to this day. Um, but yeah, my chiropractor, I saw him two, three times a week. And he was helping to heal the central nervous system. He's like, that's what I'm here for. He knew all about supplements. And he's the one that introduced me to essential oils. And I was like... Who knew? Okay, so bring it on. So I had a an array, um, array of things. And the neurologist he uh, capped it off with, "I want you to try 4.5 milligrams of low dose naltrexin." He said it gets a bad rap because it's used for opiate um, use, like people who are getting off of opiates. He said that's the high dose. Um, he said low dose naltrexin that's going to help with your healing. It's going to help your body heal at night. And he said, the only side effect are vivid dreams and good sleep. I said, I'll take it. All right. So I was on a host of things, herbs, low dose naltrexin, IV treatments, um, but also like my, the diet, keeping the diet in place, um, really getting rid of stress was a big one. Um, I had to get rid of stress. That's hard when you're working at a stressful job, a job is not really paying you well, where you feel like you're on the chopping block because of your sickness. Um, when you are in a child support court because you're not getting the right amount of money from your child's father, <laughs> it's like, why am I fighting you too? Um, so there was a lot of stress. And then I started noticing friends were shifting. So I had friends, I think we were talking about this before the show, they were in my life. And all of a sudden, literally a quote from one was, I can't handle your situation. And I was like, whoa, um, I can't either, but I have to. But um, <laughs> what do you mean? And the tears that were flowing, because I knew this friend for 30 something years of my life. We grew up together. I cannot handle your situation. I was like, wow okay, all the times I was there for you and you can't handle my stuff. All right. And I was losing 
other friends like that, friends who weren't returning calls, um, friends who said I was too needy, um, friends who were like, oh, you should be in a better financial place by now. You shouldn't be asking people for money to help with your health stuff. I was really learning a lot about some people. And I said, this is the stress my doctors are talking about. And as friends were letting me go, I had to accept being let go. And that's where therapy and counseling came in. I was like, I need a therapist and a counselor just for the Lyme disease, but I'm getting cut off left and right by friends who I thought would be my ride or dies. And they are not. And that was hurtful. That was more grief, more loss. Yes. So that was part good. of the treatment. Is is both physical, but it's also a mental and emotional and spiritual. <laughs> For sure. It's, yeah. This is a multifaceted treatment, right? But yes. Did you find that the low dose naltrexone, you know, was helping you? What what were the things? And also let's talk more about the essential oils. Were you using essential oils? Well, I guess I should focus on one thing at a time, right? That'd be helpful. So talk about the LDN. What do you think that was helpful for you for you in your treatment journey? And what kind of impact did it have on you from a symptomology standpoint? So I still take low dose naltrexone. Um, years later, um, it was 2023. So we're going over over a decade. Um, I will say this. Um, I remember when I started taking low dose naltrexone that June. And it was by August. Um, I remember having, I kept a log, a journal. I'm a writer. So I have a journal of all my symptoms. Oh, yeah. So Taylor's like, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> and I'm like, this is madness. How many symptoms I have. And I remember if I didn't feel them for so many weeks, I'm like, maybe I could check it off. Maybe I could cross it out. Okay. I remember with the LDN, I remember between June to August, four symptoms dropped. And I was like, I went from 18 to 14. I'll never forget that number. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to do a check. I'm not crossing them off yet. Just a check <laughs> and see if this is what it is. And yeah, um, you know, if you ask me what those symptoms were, I can't even tell you. But those symptoms never came back to this day. Wow. That was August 2013. And I never, knock on wood, it's been over a decade without those symptoms. I was able to sleep better. So when you sleep better, you can heal better. And yeah, the dreams were pretty wild and vivid. They did say they leave vivid dreams. But I was feeling a shift. I was getting more energy because I was able to sleep more. Um, I was able to function a little better throughout the day, um, which was needed because I was working um, full time. So I was I was on a reduced uh, hourly, like, 30, I think it was like 20 something to 32 hours. And the goal was to get back to 40 hours. So with the LDN um, and the herbs and everything else, I was able to get back to working 40 hours a week. It didn't feel like that because I was in the doctor's office every week. So, so it's like I'm working, but not working. Okay. But I did see a shift and a difference. Um, insurance, they don't cover it. Um, they, they, they didn't cover my LDN. They didn't, they, they really didn't cover my IV treatments. Um, so we had to do some, you know, had to do the claim, like pay for it out of pocket and then do a reimbursement. Uh, so there was a lot, a lot of money. Um, I look at my tax returns that I still keep to this day, and I'm looking at all the money I wrote off every single year. So when people were giving me the blues about 
oh, you should be in a better, you know, financial place. I was. And I, I have exhausted my savings. I exhausted my retirement. My, my Jeep at the time was paid off. I had to put a loan on my Jeep just to get money to pay for my treatments. Because it gets to be, and even supplements, they cost. All of this cost. Um, all the while, like I said, I wasn't getting paid too well. I'm at my job and I exhausted sick leave like nobody's business. So there was always pay without leave. And my job wasn't the kind of job where they were like, oh, we'll loan you leave. Like someone can gift you leave because they don't use their leave. They didn't, they didn't believe in that. Because I had friends at my work, at my job saying, we would love to gift you our leave. And my job would say, no, we don't do that. So it was really, um, yeah, I, I really went through a lot of stress at that job. And I will say, um, when I started to feel a lot better over the years, so we're now talking some changes happened at the job. I always felt protected because of FMLA, but it got to a point where I said, you know what, I no longer pretty much qualify because I'm back at work 40 hours a week. I'm still symptomatic, but I'm able to hold my own. And literally um, the last um, FMLA paperwork went in, let's say, December 2015. It covered me for that year. Till December 2016, I got let go February 2017. I feel like I had that bullseye wow. on my back and they were just ready to just shoot and just chuck me to the curb. But it was through, it was a reorg happening and it was a lot of us let go, but I had a feeling. It was good. I was like, I just, everybody said, oh, don't think so negative. I'm like, they've had it out for me since I said I was sick. The emails I got from certain managers was disgusting. Um, you know, talking about how I'm impacting their life. Hello, I'm sick. Um, I'm sorry your life is impacted. I'm sorry my workload sitting on the desk. Um I have, I don't even know what I have right now. So how about that? I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to die. A couple of times I really thought I was checking out of here. So in my memoir I'm writing, I literally have a chapter, death at my doorstep. That day where the heart rate was off the charts, they were really frightened. They were like, if we couldn't get your heart rate under control, that was going to be a problem. But yeah, I went through that. Um, but yeah, it was literally FMLA. And I remember even my doctor preparing me. And she said, Miss Wills, I don't know if you have any savings, but I can try to do FMLA paperwork, but it, you really can like, you're, you're at a point where thank goodness, she said, thank God you're functioning. You're able to go to work. A lot of symptoms have rolled off, never came back. She was like, you have this, these last several or few symptoms that we're still trying to put our finger on to figure out what is causing them. But that's why the FMLA, we couldn't, we couldn't fill it out anymore. And literally, yeah, like these, between December 15th, I was let go February 13th, 2017. It was like, they had it out for me. So well, I'm so sorry to go through that, Serena, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's so wrong. And I'm so sorry. Yeah, but I, I am happy on the other side of it, right, that you are feeling so much better because mm -hmm. I know you weren't in remission and I know you had a couple of symptoms left, but you were functioning. You were working 40 hours a week and you had your symptoms down to a very small amount compared to where you were. Yeah. So I'm hopeful to hear what's going on now, right? You're feeling yeah. a little bit stronger. You get laid off. 
what are your what are your yeah. steps next? What you know, what are you doing yeah. after this and and how does that roll into where you are today? So what's crazy is crazy, not crazy. During that time when I was working, um, going back to me being a writer and published, um, there was a book sitting on the shelf in my laptop. And I said, you know what, if I die today, my books are in my laptop. Um, I if I I need to leave a legacy for my son and I need to get my books out. So in the height of Lyme disease, between November 2012 to June 2014, I pumped out my first independent book, self-published. And I did it halfway laying down. I did it while in the IV room, you name it. It was already kind of pieced together, but it was like talking to the editor I had met, the graphic designer, like, I'm really doing this, y'all. This might sound crazy. I am really sick, but I have to get my book out. Pumped out Reconstruction, Pieces of Life, Volume 1. That was while I was at the job. So now they let me go. All right. Literally, after they let me go, what symptom goes away? Fatigue. The fatigue symptom lifts. And I'm like, I was that job was stressing me out so much that that symptom was just clinging on to me until I was able to, like, not worry about going back there anymore. That symptom went away. I was feeling more vibrant and alive. And I said, you know what? That was February, 2017. I said, I'm going to release my second book this year. And September, 2017, Crying Tears of Teal came out. And that book is dedicated to those who are battling ovarian cancer. It's a poetry book. But I had the, my, my creativity poured back into me. Um, I was able to, which I never thought I would do, uh, that March, a month after I got let go, I went for a walk on the GW trails, the George Washington trail out here. So I'm just going to walk for 10, 15 minutes just to clear my head. And I, I lost track of time and I looked back and I said, I can't even see my car. So I didn't realize I could walk that far until I was just lost in thought. And I said, I didn't even know I was that strong. So I said, maybe this is something I could start doing. And between 2017 to 20, like right before the pandemic, I made it my business to just start going out on the trail. And I'm like, I'll do five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And I worked my way up to getting over three miles. Now this is with one of my symptoms. I'm, I'm still not in remission. I still have a few symptoms left. One of those symptoms is, um, inner ear disturbance. So my gait is off. My equilibrium is off. So I was scared. Um, there's still like fear factor I have sometimes, but I was like, if I get out there, I feel too dizzy. Am I going to be okay? And I just kept believing in myself. Um, I just took all the inner critic and the gremlins out and said, okay, I got to keep doing this. I went back to school. Uh, nonprofit field was... That was my jam for 20 years, from 1997 to 2017. I said, I see God shifting me into the health and wellness arena. What is that going to be? I thought I was going to be a clinical nutritionist until I was like, I can't pass chemistry to save my life. It was like going back to the architecture where I couldn't pass physics or um, calculus. And they were like, you would be a great, you should look into health and wellness coaching. They were like, you're such an advocate. You're such a coach. And I said, let me try some classes and loved it. Fell in love with the major, the program. So now I'm at the school where I was once a patient. Now I'm a student. 
So I got my Master of Arts in Health and Wellness Coaching 2018. So I'm still dealing with some symptoms, but actually going back to school helped to heal me. I learned about Tai Chi, Qigong, meditation, mindfulness, mindful eating. All this was part of our curriculum. Um, I took nutrition classes. So I'm healing myself while I'm in school, learning how to be a health and wellness coach for others. So I um, graduated uh, that, yeah, got my degree that June of 2018, wrapped up classes that August 2018. A few of us said, while we're in the school mode, let's study for the board exam. And we studied for the national board exam and we all passed that November of 2018. So I was like, let's just keep the train running and um, pumped out my next book, The Awakening, Pieces of Life, Volume 2. That came out December 2019. So I was still writing, but I was like, I got to keep getting my books out there. Um, so I'm writing, I'm walking, I'm believing more in myself. Um, there were some things happening, unfortunately, because I'm getting older. So the one thing that was also something I was also dealing with on top of Lyme was I was having reproductive system issues. So after, well, before I had my son, um, I was diagnosed with HPV twice, um, the human papillomavirus. So I had abnormal, uh, my, my cervix it was abnormal cells of the cervix. And thank goodness I was in remission from that from 2001 on. Um, but as 2020 hit, we had a pandemic. We're still kind of in the throws it's like I don't know what you want to call this it. part of the pandemic but I'm like I'm in a pandemic with Lyme um but there's something else going on and my menstrual cycles were getting off the chain so um I already knew I had a cyst in each ovary I told you my mom died of ovarian cancer so this was a worry and for years the insurance companies from the time I think yeah my son was like in kindergarten up until uh, last year, I was denied over and over for a hysterectomy, despite having cysts in the ovaries, cysts in my uterus, endometriosis, abnormal cervix. They just denied me over and over because they were like, oh, you're still in your childbearing years. I was like, I have Lyme disease and I have a child. I don't want I'm good with kids. I have five godchildren. <laughs> I have a child. But this is my my health because I'm now putting it together that when my cycle comes, it's, it's, it's increasing my symptoms. Like my symptoms were going through the roof and my cycles were getting longer. The cramps were getting more excruciating. So between 2020 to 2022, now, mind you, we really couldn't go to a lot of doctors in 2020. And I was now going through another cycle of, um, I went through one bad doctor, so I can't talk to you. You're not the answer. Went back, talked to my old gynecologist. He said, I don't accept your insurance, but I know someone who does. And he led me to my GYN doctor. We worked things out, tried other things. He says, you know what? We both came to an agreement. And I was like, I need, I, I need a, a full hysterectomy. I was like, because if I'm going to heal from Lyme, and I said, every month my body's inflamed with the cycle and it's getting worse. And sure enough, um, I don't know what he told the insurance company, but he got me approved. And this past February, I got a full hysterectomy. And when I say 
yes, the walking part was interesting. Um, after a full hysterectomy, like, can I get to the bathroom? Okay. But that first month without a cycle and my symptoms, uh, like without them upticking, I was like, wow, like my symptoms are kind of at a level where I can now manage them. And now I can probably, hopefully, knock on wood, I will heal from these last few symptoms. But when you have a cycle that is so outrageous like mine was, that was now hindering my healing from Lyme disease and co-infections. So I had a hiccup in the pandemic, but I still kept writing. I still kept getting published. My next book is actually debuting. The pre-orders next is going to be out in October of 2023. So by the time you see this um, podcast, you hear it, it will be published. It's already published. It's just I'm putting all the events together and putting release parties together and stuff and really being um, like being a more active mom with my son. He got me, my son got me back in the pool. He's a swimmer. So he's like, mom, get in the pool with me. Let's go swimming. I'm like, yeah, right. Um, so I got back in the pool before the pandemic started. And um, he's been swimming since he was five. He's now 12. And I started going to family swim classes, family day. And that was now our routine. I would go swimming every Sunday afternoon with my son. And that was helping me with the shortness of breath. It was helping me control my breath better and getting my body back in shape. So I'm power walking, I'm swimming. Um, but now I'm in menopause, y'all. So pray for me. Um, so pray for me uh, you got this. I'm, I'm tired. Okay. I'm tired. And I have an elliptical machine that's looking at me. I'm looking at it. Um, I have a yoga mat. So I'm like, okay, the goal is to just move the body. So I'm like, let me just do Tai Chi. Let me do some Qigong. Let me do some stretching. Let me do some yoga. Um, but I did have a physical therapist in the middle of it all. And the other year he said, you do have to move your body. And he said, you got, like you said, you got this. He said, go back for your walks and start over. Walk five minutes and increase, do the 10 minutes, do the 15 minutes. Um, Cause they did find there were a couple of things going on with inflammation, lower back disc issues, you know, but um, just, he said, but you got the right diet. You're on the right stuff. You know how to chuck the stress to the curb. <laughs> he said, but you know, sometimes unfortunately loss kept coming. So I lost my grandmother in 2020. That was a heavy hit. And you want to talk about symptoms really flaring? Yeah. Um, Cause I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. And it's the height of the pandemic. We weren't allowed to see her. Um, so I went from seeing her that Christmas 2019 to, oh, I'll see you back again in the springtime to the lockdown happening March 1st to the Southern states being on travel ban. Cause at the time the governor of New York had this travel ban list and you dare not cross the New Jersey border with Southern plates. You were getting turned around. So I never got a chance to see my grandmother since Christmas 2019 and to see her again in a casket through me. I mean, I was in a flare for a couple of months. It was really bad. And I was like, I'm grieving. I'm going through loss. So I said, let me do what I know how to do. And I put myself back into grief counseling and therapy. I said, I can't do this alone. I was like, cause that was like my rock. My other rock is gone. 
And um, she was 96. God bless her heart. But it was this pandemic. She got depressed. She didn't want to be locked down. So I did. I have been going through some stuff. Um, but the creative juices are flowing. Um, where I'm at today, uh, the grad school I was talking about where I went to, I now work for them. I'm adjunct faculty um, for That's my amazing. Grad Congratulations. School. That's so <laughs> Thank cool. Thank you. Um, I was a teaching assistant. I'm also that too. I have two roles. Um, I was hired as that first last September. And then it was this February. I asked for more classes. Like, can I help assist more classes? And they were like, you know, we got one better for you. We actually have been thinking about wanting to make you adjunct faculty. And of course, I was crying my eyes out. This was after the hysterectomy, two weeks after my hysterectomy. I'm like, are you serious? They're like, as soon as the job opens, we need you to apply for it because we have a class we want you to teach this summer. And I'm back in my department, health and wellness coaching. So I'm teaching the next generation of coaches. And so I'm That's teaching so cool. and I'm now working as a 1099 for another health and wellness company. And I'm a health and wellness coach through them. And I have my own set of clients. Um, I have my own practice, uh, Divine Right Wellness, right spelled W-R-Y-T-E. Um, you can check me out, divineright.com. And that is my health and wellness practice where I took um, what I went through with Lyme and what my mom went through. And of course I have health and wellness coaching clients but I did one better. I did. I took what I went through with the job experiences and I have a workplace wellness program. I was like, because too many people, whether you're sick or not, are going through the blues at their workplace and I can introduce stress reduction techniques. So I created that and um, like just taking all the things that were the blues in my life and turning them into good. And that's what I'm doing now. Earlier today, I was teaching for another 1099. I have so many jobs. Um, I have another 1099. <laughs> and um, I teach wellness classes through another health company. Oh. And I'm teaching the art of mindful eating. Um, so I teach people how to mindfully eat. What does that look like? Um, how to be holistically well at the workplace when you're stressed out. Um, so I actually love to create content and classes. And now I'm able to get paid to teach them. And I teach through library systems and nonprofit organizations and companies. So that is what I'm doing today. All the while still now about to go through another phase, another shift in my protocol and healing process with Lyme and co-infections. Um, met with a holistic nutritionist just yesterday. And we're doing a couple of more things with my diet. I'm like, God, I'm restricted as it is. Um, but we're going to try something different. Like we're going to try to not do so much fish and do a lot of raw food, more raw food. And I love juicing. So we're going to do a juice fast, more of a raw fast. But she said, I, I have to re you have to reset that immune system mm -hmm. again. And she said, cause you're getting older. And she said, I really think part of what's holding back those symptoms is a couple of other items you're putting in your body, like fish. And she said, no, no, not to fish, but she said fish doesn't have fiber. And so it kind of sits, it's sitting. So it's not coming out and taking other things with it. So we're going to try that. Um, I dare not say this. I don't know. You may, you may have to edit this out, but I'm going to uh, actually have a Rife machine. So 
going to try Rife. Um, purchased it in the pandemic, tried it out, and just trying to find the right, is it once a month? Is it once a week? Because everybody's different. So we've had people, we've had people tell us Rife has been transformational in the healing journey. We have others tell us they've tried it and it just really didn't help them much at all. But yeah, you know, I think it's worth a try because we have had people that said it's been transformational and extremely helpful in their healing journey. So, I mean, look, I, I tried the Freemedica device, right? You know, the Yolanda Hadid, she had the Freemedica device with the healing frequencies. We had the founder on and I tried that and people, I wore, I wore it at work and people were like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, Hey, (laughs) leave me alone. Right. And, and, you know, I'll try it. You know, it's, it's really, you have to weigh the risk versus reward. And the risk is some of these things I feel is minimal and it's worth a try. So don't, you know, I I mean, I I love, I love your drive. And thank you. Thank you. I just, I just want to say that I think you're being extremely humble. I think (laughs) that you are, and, and this is a really good way to conclude. I know we've had you on for quite a while. You are an extremely smart and driven person, Serena. You oh, are thank you, you are a glowing soul. You are a brilliant person. I've just loved hearing everything you've had to say tonight. Thank and you. I just want I want to make sure everybody knows how they can find you. And of course, we're going to have all this information in the show notes and we're going to have hyperlinks there as well for people to, to learn more. But your website I'm, I'm, I've you know gone through is serenawills.com. That's S-E-R-E-N-A-W-I-L-L-S.com. And you have all of your books and publications on there, which is really cool. So people can see everything you've done on there. You have all information about you as an author, you know, writing poetry, your publications, events, and then your your coaching website is divinewrite.com, D-I-V-I-N-E-W-R-Y-T-E.com. And there's all kinds mm-hmm. of information about your you know health and wellness coaching on there. Yeah. And I just want to thank you for, you know, a lot of people, this this experience is very difficult and some people just give up. So I want to thank wow. you for continuing to fight and mm-hmm. again, I know you have a couple of symptoms left, but I'm confident and, and I know Taylor's confident you're going to get yeah. those symptoms eliminated soon. Thank you. And, Thank you. you know, you're you're using your experience to help people not have to suffer as much as you did for the things you went through that were difficult. Right. Learn to teach people yeah. how to not be to, to have a better work, you know, work experience. You're teaching people yes. how to have to manage their diet better when it comes to Lyme disease. You're teaching people how to heal as a health and wellness coach when it comes to a holistic approach, not just Lyme disease, but things like you had with eczema and autoimmune-like conditions, right? That were just sort of bubbling beneath the surface. So, you know, this has been a hugely inspirational podcast. I'm really excited to share this with the community. Thank you. Thank you. Serena, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Taylor, thank you for coming on and co-hosting. You guys have been amazing and you've made my night. So thank you both. Oh, thank you. Matt, thank you so much. Um, please send my regards to Rich. Sorry he missed it. Um, <laughs> I'm not. Taylor's better. <laughs> yeah, you know, but thank you, Matt. Thank you, Taylor. Um, I really appreciate it. I feel inspired because sometimes you do feel like, am I ever going to see out of this? Like, am I going to see these last symptoms out? And it's like a an extremely long marathon. That's why I tell people I feel like um, you can see the finish line from a distance, but you're not quite there yet. That's how I feel. You are way closer than you think, Serena. I'm telling you, from personal experience, you are way closer than you (laughs) think. And I need that. I'm looking next to me like I have like the Rife machine, the ionic foot bath. I have a portable infrared sauna with people. They they have them where you can fold them up and put in the corner of your apartment. And they're not that expensive. And I'm like, I had to bring it all into the house during the pandemic, which has been the best move. So yeah. Thank you. Um, I will yes. keep you posted on the journey. Please do. Yes, and, definitely you know, this, will. We will. We will be sharing all the links in the show notes. Again, thank you. And and when you do make your next 
when you make your next improvement, which is going to be remission, we're certainly going to have to do an update to the other community. So again, thank you both. And we will be in touch. More to come. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.